Well, today is February 24th, so most of us have probably given up our New Year's dieting resolutions by now. I actually did one at the beginning of the year called Half 15. So if you're not familiar with Half 15, it's halfway through Whole30 when I decide Dr. Pepper is better than this diet, and so I turn around. So we actually had a little incident in our home. What happened was, this was a couple of weeks into the diet, Melissa had asked, hey, can we do Whole30 again? I said, yeah, we can do Whole30. I'll participate, at least on the dinners where I don't have an option, I will participate. So we're doing this. And then the problem happened that my dad came by and he gave me a bag of peanut butter M&Ms. Now, I don't think it's godly to reject a gift. So I felt compelled to eat that bag of M&Ms. But I wanted to encourage Melissa. I wanted her to fight the good fight and keep going. So what I did one night when we were watching TV, we're on the couch, I had my peanut butter M&Ms, I pulled the blanket over them so she wouldn't know what was going on. Now she asked me, what are you eating? And often at night I'll have some pecans or almonds. So I told her nuts, which I don't think is a lie because there are nuts and peanut butter M&Ms. So that's what I told her. But a minute later she looked at me and said, what are you eating? She realized the sound of the M&Ms that they make. It's that thin chocolatey shell that gave it away. But I was busted. So that's when the diet ended and I gave up and I was freed from my chains. I was no longer a slave to Whole30. Um, that's where I live today. But the reality is for you and I, you know, we often do want to eat healthier, however we define that. And as I've done different diets and plans, I realized one of my challenges is snacks that when there's something good in the house to eat, it's hard for me to say no. Whether that's pretzels, chips and salsa, or those aforementioned M&Ms, it's hard for me to just say, no, I'm not gonna eat that, I'm going to wait until dinner. This has actually been even harder as a parent. You know, when Lily gets to eat all those goldfish and animal crackers, it's hard not to share a few of them with, them, with her. It's just how I bond. It starts with a couple, and then you finish a bag of goldfish in a few minutes. So that's how our family bonds. <laughs> the problem is when we're snacking that way, we start to fill up our appetite. We quench our appetite. And so then we're not hungry when dinner time comes. So these unhealthy, unsatisfying snacks actually become a substitute for a tastier, healthier meal we should look forward to. I'm sure you're figuring out where this is going, but I think this is what Jesus actually warns us against today in John chapter six. That as he's talking to the Jews who have been following him because of his miracles, he tells them they are seeking the wrong things. He says they're focused on the earthly, temporal, the felt needs right in front of them. And he tells them there's a bigger, more substantial meal to look for. Jesus, wants them, Jesus warns them against this spiritual snacking. He tells them, don't feed yourselves on things that can't satisfy you. Don't feed yourself on a snack that can't give you joy, that can't fulfill your longings. But feed yourself on the bread of life who truly can satisfy you and give you the life you're looking for. Well, today we'll be in John chapter 6. So if you haven't already gone there, take your Bible, go to chapter 6, verses 22 to 40. Today is the first of three messages in John chapter 6. And to understand what Jesus is telling us today, I've divided the text into two parts. 
So in the first part, verses 25 to 34, Jesus has this back and forth dialogue or conversation with the Jews. And then after that, he moves into an extended discourse or a sermon where he talks about him being the bread of life. So the dialogue focuses on us, us seeking the right things. And then in his discourse or his sermon, he moves to him, the salvation that he offers. And what he's saying is that he gives a salvation that satisfies and a salvation that lasts. So as we'll see today, the main point of our message is that Jesus is the bread of life, that he feeds us now and he gives us eternal life. Let me quickly give some context. Verses 22 to 24 at the beginning of our passage, they really just connect us to what has happened the last couple of weeks. If you remember in John chapter 6, verse 2, it tells us that there's a crowd following after Jesus, that they've seen him do all these miracles, that he was healing people of all their diseases, and so they follow him. And then at the beginning of the chapter, he does this even more miraculous thing, and he feeds 5,000 people. Well, some of the people realize that Jesus then slips away. He walks across the water, water gets to the other side of the sea, and they realize he's, he's gone, and so they follow after him. And so when they get there, they're following Jesus. They're almost like an entourage following a professional athlete or celebrity. They're thinking, if Jesus can do these things, he's a, he could be a king. Like, he could do anything. And if we're the people following him, think of what that could mean for us. Like that's setting us up for success as the people following after this miracle worker. And so that's the background that leads us to our text today where Jesus tells them that's the problem, that you're seeking after the wrong things. That again, they're focused on how material, physical, earthly things might satisfy them. And Jesus wants them to see you're looking in the wrong places. That he alone is the bread of life. He alone saves, but also he alone satisfies, he sustains us, and he strengthens us. So we'll start in verses 25 to 33, and we'll look at this conversation or dialogue. We'll notice that the Jews, they ask three questions, and then Jesus gives three answers. And those answers focus on first, the what. Jesus says, seek what satisfies, not substitutes. Then they ask about the how. And Jesus responds, well, seek it by grace through faith, not your works. And then the where, Jesus says, seek it in him, not from him, and not anywhere else. So we'll start with the first Q&A in verses 25 to 27. We didn't do a scripture reading up front, but I'm going to read through all the passages slowly throughout the sermon. So I'll be in verses 25 to 27 right here. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Well, this first question, it might be innocent enough, um, but Jesus immediately gets to the issue. They ask how he got there, which might imply, why didn't you tell us? Or why didn't you bring us with you? And Jesus says, because you're looking for the wrong things. When Jesus says, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the bread, 
He doesn't mean that they're not following him because of those signs, but they're not following him because of what those signs pointed to. They actually love the miracles. They love the signs themselves, and they want more of that. They want this magic genie Jesus who can heal their sickness, who can give them bread, who can do whatever they want. But Jesus says, but you're missing the sign and what this is telling you. That the point isn't the miracles. The point is the one who can do these miracles. The point is that God, the Messiah you've been waiting for, he is now here and he's in front of you. So he continues in verse 27 and tells them, because of that, don't work for the food that perishes, but seek after the food that endures to eternal life, which only the Son of Man can give. As we'll see throughout our text today, Jesus highlights this key idea that they're concerned about the wrong things. That again, they're focused on physical food, or at least the miracles Jesus has been doing and they want him to do more of. That they want this healer, this chef, this guy who can bless them however they need. Maybe even a political king who can restore Israel and them to power. They're prioritizing and they're living for the things of the earth. They're caught up in what is right in front of them. Even good things like healing and food. But they've elevated those things to a place that they shouldn't be at. And like Jesus often does... He presses us past the surface and he wants us to consider bigger needs and the longings of our heart. This crowd is full of seekers, that they're people who are desperate for something. They just don't know what that is. And Jesus taps into that restlessness that I think all of us are familiar with, that there is something in, in us that searches for more, something in us that desires and longs and yearns for joy, for rest, for meaning, for fulfillment, and for satisfaction. We all have those deeply rooted desires and those longings, and that is a good thing. But the problem is we look in the wrong places to fulfill those desires. That we get caught up in things that don't truly matter, and we make them the point of our life. Or that we look to something and think, this can give me joy. They can give me rest. This can give me the significance I'm looking for. So I want us to pause here at the beginning of the sermon and start thinking about what do I personally prioritize over Jesus? Or what things in my life actually compete with Jesus? Where do we go to find that joy or that peace that he alone is offering? Essentially, what I'm raising here is the issue of what are the idols of our heart? What are the things we turn to instead of turning to Jesus? This isn't a complete list, but I'm going to ask a few questions and again, personalize this. The goal of these questions is to help us think through what are those idols? We all have them, but what do I trust to? What competes for Jesus? What are the snacks in my life that get in the place of Jesus? You might ask, well, what do I think about? What do I look forward to? What do I spend money on, give time and energy towards the most? What consumes my life and what do I care about? Or you could fill in this blank. If only, then I would be happy, fulfilled, and secure. What's that thing that you think? If only I had this. If only this happened. If only this would be different, then I could be happy. Then I could rest. Then I, life would be good. 
Or ask yourself, what causes me to feel frustrated, angry, empty, worried, anxious, or disappointed? Those feelings, those emotions, they're often symptoms of a bigger issue in our heart. Or again, you could fill in the blanks, I deserve this, or I just want this. And we think, well, I have to have that. That's the thing in life I must have in order to be happy. Or ask yourself, is there something I'm willing to sin in order to get, or something or where I'd be willing to sin if I don't get it? Just a couple more. You know, being honest, ask, well, where do I look for satisfaction? Where do I look for my significance? And what do I trust in for my security? Last one you would ask, I spend time, energy, and money on this. What is that thing in your life? Because I think it is what's most important, or I think it offers me a good life. So those are just questions meant to help us be honest and ask, what are the things in my life I aim my heart at that I look to instead of Jesus? What are the competition, the snacks, the spiritual snacks that I substitute in his place? Well, this leads us to the next question in verses 28 and 29. So Jesus moves on from there. The Jews move on from there. And it says, they then ask him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So if the first question focuses on the what, seek what satisfies, not substitutes, The second question is about the how, how we seek Jesus. Jesus tells them to seek this, seek what satisfies, not through your own works or your effort, but as a gift of grace from God. That the things worth seeking after, they're not earned through your effort, but they're given to us by God. After Jesus' response about seeking what satisfies, they ask this question. And notice the tone of their question. It says, What work must we do to do the work God requires? It shows that they have a works-oriented mindset, that they're asking, what can I do to get this, to get this bread, to get this eternal life, to find this fulfillment and satisfaction? They want to put the burden of those things on their shoulders. But Jesus, Jesus responds with a God-centered answer. Our work must simply be to believe, to rest in, and to trust in Jesus. That it's not about what we do, but it's about what God does for us. When it comes to the big question here of how do we get this? How do we get eternal life? How do we find joy and satisfaction? We can never be the answer. In our sinfulness, we are only the problem. We know that we can't erase our sin that we can't change our hearts. We can't just will ourselves to do good all the time. And so because of that, we can't earn God's approval. We can't fix our life. We can't rescue ourselves. And Jesus wants them to know that. Jesus wants them to know how needy and desperate they are, that there's no work they can do to do what God requires. But all they need to do is to believe in him. That when we receive Jesus, when we grasp him by faith, We receive all of his righteousness. We receive in him everything we need for that eternal life. It's a humbling thing, asking for forgiveness. They need to admit their help, to see their need for rescue, 
and just to receive what God will do in Christ for them by grace. That's how they get this. So this then leads to our third question and response in verses 30 to 33. So then they say to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So then Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So with this third question, we see Jesus moving from the what and the how to where do we seek this? Their third question builds off of Jesus's prior answer. And they must get at least part of what he is saying. Jesus has just told them, you must believe in me. And they say, well, why should we? They ask, what work will you do that we should believe in and follow you? And then it's funny because they bring up what Moses did in Exodus 16. And I want to quickly summarize that part of the Old Testament because that's the background to the entire chapter of John chapter 6. It's the background to why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And it's the background to the questions the Jews are asking right here. So in Exodus 16, Israel was in the wilderness. They were hungry. They were needing food. They were desperate for it. Their life depended on it. And so what God did was God provided a miracle. Every morning he provided bread they could collect and they just had to go out and receive it. They didn't make the bread. They didn't earn the bread. Every day it was there for them. It's like how a lot of kids, they come downstairs in the morning and breakfast is magically there. It just appeared. Well, God does that for Israel, but he tells them this, and this is the kicker, that he will only provide enough for one day at a time. He wants to teach them that not only will he give them life, not only will he provide and sustain them, but they have to trust him to do so. He tells them if they act out of fear or worry, and so they try to collect more bread or double bread for the next day, that that bread will rot. It won't work. They have to trust in him, walk by faith one day at a time. So that's the background. That's Exodus 16. That's what the Jews have just brought up when they mention the manna in the wilderness that Moses provided. So then Jesus, what can you do that's even bigger and better than that? So Jesus responded with a couple of points. He says, first off, it wasn't Moses who provided this bread. It was God, that God rained the bread down from heaven. And second, this bread from heaven that God gave in the Old Testament, that it was meant to point to another bread that he would send. That the bread in Exodus points to a coming one sent down from heaven by God to give eternal life. That bread was pointing to a person. So what Jesus is doing here is he is redirecting their attention onto a person, off of stuff, off of miracles, off of bread, and onto himself. They're following him because of what they think Jesus can give them or what Jesus can do for them. And Jesus tells them, what you need isn't something from me. What you need isn't for me to do something for you, but what you need is me. Jesus says, the place you find life, the key to happiness and fulfillment, the way to get joy and rest and satisfaction, 
That is found in me alone because I am the bread of life. That Jesus sustains and strengthens us. That Jesus gives the joy and the peace and the rest. That Jesus satisfies the hungry soul and he refreshes the weary. Before we move on, I want to pause here and say one way we would apply that. I think God actually sometimes he withdraws blessings and he allows trials to come because the reality is you and I, we get too attached to God's gifts that we start to find our comfort, our security, our joy, our satisfaction in the things from God and not in God himself. What was given to you, that thing in your life that was meant to be a gift, it's easy for that to become a God, to become an idol in our heart. And I think this is seen in how a loss of blessing or a blessing being threatened, how that leads to the loss of joy in our life, or it leads to anger and anxiety and emptiness, where we feel like what matters most is missing. We often believe life is only good when things in my life are good, irregardless of if I'm walking with Christ or feeding on the bread of life. And so when trials or when hard things enter our life, we're given the choice of will we rest in? Will we find our joy and our peace and our security and our significance in God alone? Or will we look to something else? Maybe something God can do or give, but we're waiting for him to fix the problem. And that's when we can be happy. That's when we can find satisfaction is when the trial goes away or the blessing is given. So I think one perspective here we can have on trials is to actually see them as a blessing, that they can loosen the grip that idols have on our heart. That trials, even though they're hard, They allow us to see that this thing, it only disappoints, that it deceives, that it could never satisfy me. And what I need most now is God. I don't need stuff from Jesus. I need Jesus himself. And so the trial pushes us to him. It pushes us to, again, go back to Jesus, find our joy and our satisfaction, to learn that in him is our ultimate good. So far in the first half of this um, dialogue, we've seen the back and forth question and response method. The Jews ask about something and Jesus responds. And he says, seek what truly satisfies, not any substitutes. He tells them to seek it by grace through faith, not through their works. And that we seek it not just from him and certainly not apart from him, but we seek it in him. So far, the dialogue has been a lot about our seeking, how we should seek it and what we should seek after it. But in this next section, Jesus actually moves to an extended message, the the longest in John, on his salvation. He shifts from our seeking to the salvation that Jesus gives. So we'll see that that salvation is fulfilling, that that salvation is free, and that that salvation is firm and forever. So we'll start by being again in verses 34. I'll read 34 to 37. It says, they they respond to him after that, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
So Chris has mentioned throughout our study of John that Jesus does these seven signs and each sign is followed by discourse. So in John chapter six, the feeding of the 5,000, that's the fourth sign. And then this is the fourth discourse. So it's following up the feeding of the 5,000. We also see that this is the first of seven I am statements in John. And each of these I am statements are signifying a way that Jesus is the divine Messiah, that he fulfills what the Old Testament pointed to and pictured. When our last response of Jesus we looked at, he said that the Father sends a true bread from heaven to give life to the world. And we see that the Jews don't really get this because they say, well, give us this bread always. Like, we want this bread. We want this bread all the time. Give it to us. So this leads Jesus to amplify his answer. He says, I am the bread of life. He's saying that story in Exodus, that pointed to me, that I am better than Moses because I don't just give manna, but I am the manna, that I am the one sent by the Father to give life to the whole world. If we remember that Jesus is expanding upon that earlier miracle, Jesus is saying that, yes, I did a miracle, but the bigger thing, the point, is that I can do that. It's not what I can give you, but it's that I am here, that the one who can give blessing and meeting and satisfaction is in front of you as the bread of life. He then adds, Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will not thirst. What we see in part through this passage is that Jesus offers at least a couple things to those who believe in him. First, Jesus is offering eternal life. We see this in verses 38 to 40, but the ramifications of believing in Jesus is that we have life forever. It's eternal. But Jesus wants us to also see, in addition to that, That this life isn't just future, but he came to change life in the here and the now. That Jesus is offering to make us new. That Jesus is offering to satisfy the hungers and the thirsts of our soul. Listen to what he says later in John 17, 3. Jesus says, and this is eternal life. This is what life is. This is what I come to give. That they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus is offering to fulfill the deepest hungers and longings of our soul. Not by giving us things, but by giving us himself. He is the bread of life. And when we feed on him, we will never hunger or go thirsty. Now these desires, these yearnings in our soul are talked about. These are too big to be satisfied by finite things. But these desires, these hopes, these longings, they point us to something else. When I was in college, I read this following quote by Oz Guinness. As a college student, I was trying to figure out what does give joy. And I had my life ahead of me. What would truly satisfy me? What would answer that restlessness in my soul? And Oz Guinness writes this. Our human desire can go wrong in two ways. First, when we stop desiring anything outside ourselves and we fall for the pathetic illusion that we are sufficient in ourselves. Or second, when we desire such things as fame, riches, beauty, wisdom, and human love that are as finite as we are and thus unworthy of our absolute devotion. Because true satisfaction And real rest can only be found in the highest 
and most lasting good. All seeking short of the pursuit of God brings only restlessness. And so Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, that I can stop that restlessness, that I can fulfill you, that I can satisfy you. And this is what we all want. And this is what draws many people to Jesus, not just for forgiveness of sins, though we need that, but also for the fulfillment of our heart that we are looking for. To provide, again, just one quick application of what do we do with that? Or what does this mean for us? I want to remind us that the greatest way we fight sin then isn't merely saying no. We're hoping we're strong and disciplined enough to not give in to temptation. But we fight sin by feasting on Jesus. That we fill the hungers of our souls by feasting on the one who can satisfy so we don't open the pantry and look for a snack. You know, in all our temptations, we're always looking for something of what can this give me or what can this provide? And the problem is those temptations, those idols, those things we turn to, not only do they not fulfill us, but they then keep us from turning to Jesus, the one who can give life, the one who can satisfy. So they take his place, their snacks and substitutes. And Jesus says, if I am the bread of life, then you feed on me. And that's how we fight temptation, with a better meal, a better desire. Well, Jesus now, he moves from the fact that this salvation he gives, it's fulfilling, to a second thing. He says this salvation also is a free salvation to any who come to him by faith. That it's free. We talked about this earlier. We don't have to earn it, and it's not received through our works. So we might hear this and respond like the Jews of what can we do, but I think most of us actually respond in the opposite way. We think, well, that can't apply to me, right? We think our sinfulness and our failures would disqualify us. We know the sin and the stubbornness in our hearts, and we think, well, that can't be true for me. We think this might be true for other people, but I can't find pardon. I can't be cleansed and washed completely. There's no way my shame can be gone or that I can actually find happiness. But notice what Jesus tells us, starting in verse 36. He says to this crowd that you have not believed in me, but that God's salvation will not be stopped or thwarted. That God is drawing a people to himself who will believe in him, who will turn from themselves and their sin, and they will trust in him. Those, though these religious Jews, they might have rejected Jesus, the offer is now extended to Gentiles and to the whole world world. We see then that Jesus, Jesus comes for sinners, not just the religious, not just the upright, and not just the Jew, but for sinners and the whole world. Because it's not about our goodness outweighing our badness, but it's about trusting in Jesus by grace through faith more than we trust in our works. If we move to verse 37, and I love this verse, Jesus says, well, if anyone does come to me, if anyone does believe in me, if any person takes of the bread of life, then I will never cast them away. I will never reject them. I will never drive them away. You know, we do this to people all the time, but Jesus does not. You might get a call on your phone, you see someone's name, and you immediately send them to voicemail. Or I think we've all done the trick in our house where somebody's stopping by, we lock the door, we flip off the light, Maybe it's a family member, a friend, trick-or-treater, 
maybe salesperson, but we shut it all off and we say, we're not, they're not getting in here today. We find ways to keep people out, to tell people no, and to push them to the side. But Jesus says, I will never do anything like that. Jesus says, if any person, any humble, broken sinner comes to me by faith, that there will never be a keep out sign, that he will never lock the door as we approach, that he will never look on us with disdain or disappointment, that he will never tell us, well, you're not the kind of person I was hoping would come, and that he he will never, ever tell us to leave. Instead, Jesus offers all of us to come with open arms, a warm embrace, and he sets us at the table and he gives us a feast. And that's true despite ourselves because it's a free gift of God that Jesus has purchased it and that we simply receive it from him by faith. So that means for us, if any of us and all of us, if we humbly see our need and look to Jesus, that can be true for us. That our sin doesn't disqualify us, that the shame and guilt of our worst moments, whether that was done to you or something you did, that that doesn't ban you, that there's nothing that can keep you out. The mess and the baggage in your life doesn't make you an exception that this doesn't apply to. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, I will not cast them away. I will welcome them in. If you're here and you never have turned and trusted in Jesus, I would say make today the day. That Jesus is saying, if you come to me, if you believe on me, if you trust in me, I will welcome you. He will not say, no, this isn't for you. And if you're a believer, the encouraging news is we can keep doing this. That we can approach God in faith and belief, knowing that he welcomes us. Knowing that he also wants to give us joy and satisfaction. That he doesn't look on us with disappointment or see us as damaged goods, but he tells us to come to him through Jesus. Well, as we move to the third thing we see, Jesus tells us the salvation he gives, it's not only fulfilling, it's not only free because of grace, but it's also firm and forever. That the bread Jesus gives, it never rots, never goes bad, can never be revoked or taken away or lost. At the beginning of verse 38, there's a four, and the four connects us to the prior verse. So what we see is that all or any who come to Jesus by faith are all kept by Christ. I'm going to read 38 to 40. Notice the way this connection happens. It says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. We talked about this a lot last year as we were in 1 John, but this is the ground of our assurance. That any person who trusts and believes in Jesus will be preserved and kept by Jesus that Jesus loses none who are his, that neither our faithlessness, nor our sin, nor the enemy, that no one can take us out of Christ's hands, that when we believe on him, that we are united with him as one, 
and that Jesus will never divorce us. That when we believe on Jesus, it says we are declared righteous. We are given that verdict, and it's a verdict that is never reversed. That when we believe on Jesus, we actually are given new and eternal life, and he never revokes it or takes it back. I love the words of the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, where we sing about this, where we trust that Jesus alone can do that work. It says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. In all our weakness, Jesus will be strong and faithful. That Jesus is the one who holds us. That Jesus is the one who holds you. That Jesus will keep all who are his. Church, everything we need is found in Jesus. Jesus offers a salvation that is fulfilling, that it meets the desires and longings of our heart, that Jesus gives us a free salvation that we get as a gift by faith. But Jesus also offers this firm salvation, that it is final, it is fixed, and it is forever. He not only will never cast us away if we come to him, but he will keep all who are his. And only Jesus can be that. Only Jesus is the bread of life, giving us eternal life, but also the life we need and we want here and now. So my encouragement is to not seek after any substitutes, but to seek after the one who sustains us and the one who satisfies us. Well, this morning as we close, I want us to respond by doing something a little different. Hopefully on or below your seat, there's an index card and a pencil. You might have to share a pencil. But during this next song, I want us to reflect on any of those substitutes we turn to instead of Jesus. You know, what is the thing or the things that compete in my life with Christ, that take priority over him? What have you looked to for satisfaction, for significance, or for security and joy? What I want you to simply do is write on the post-it note, Jesus is greater than, and you fill in the blank with that idol, that substitute. Maybe it's finding a spouse. Maybe it's the spouse you have. Maybe it's your kids or your work, your career. Maybe it's material possessions or health. Maybe vacation or shopping or video games or alcohol or the opinions of others or social media or who knows what. But what is that thing you tend to trust in that you look to that you think gives you life. And we need to know that Jesus is greater than that. Or maybe there's a struggle. Maybe you're worried about a problem, a health issue, financial struggles, something in your life feels missing. And we need to again believe that Jesus is greater than even that. So what I want you to do is I want you to, during this next song, be praying about what is that thing in my life? And I want you to write it down. And then I want you to take it with you this week. Maybe put it in your Bible, Put it on the dash of your car, on a mirror, somewhere where you will see it. And this week, I want us to remember that these are the temptations in our life, that these are the things we trust in, we turn to, that compete with Jesus, 
But Jesus is greater than those things. That Jesus alone is the bread of life. So during this next song, None But Jesus, I want you to pray, I want you to reflect, and I want you to linger on how Jesus alone can be the delight of our hearts.